Hey, hey guys, welcome back. We have another one for you. Uh, today we have a terrific guest. Uh, his name is Steve Friesen, and uh, he is an author, writer, historian, researcher, and uh, he might say that he's not, but I think he is based upon the book that he wrote. Um, before we get into that, I want to thank my friends at the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. Um, urge you to join the journal, uh, deep, deep research journal, including uh, 2024 is our roundup in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I'd love to see you there. Uh, for more information, you can go to uh, Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. Also, I want to thank uh, uh, my friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph, one of Arizona's longest running newspapers. You can get the Tombstone Epitaph delivered right to your door. Uh, by going to tombstoneepitaph.com and subscribing. And Mark and Eric and a whole team of researchers and writers are doing their thing to bring some of the best history to you in a newspaper format. And you get it delivered to your door and you can take it uh, you can take it on a plane, you can take it on the train, wherever you're traveling, or just around the house if you like me and you like a newspaper. It's the best way to get Western history and a newspaper itself by going to tombstoneepitaph.com. So in a recent um, article in um, True West Magazine, uh, there was a post in there, and I kind of read through the thing, and then I reached out to our mutual friend, uh, Sarah Key, over at University of Nebraska Press. And I said, I'd really like to interview Steve. And uh, she connected us. So I want to thank Sarah Key and all the folks at University of Nebraska Press. They are very kind to me personally and helping uh, put podcasts together and get guests together. So huge thanks to Sarah and everybody at University of Nebraska Press. And... Um, they connected me with Steve, and Steve has written a book called the Ga not the but Galloping Gourmet Eating and Drinking with Buffalo Bill. And Steve is going to talk about his life, and he's got a lot to talk about Buffalo Bill because he's got a great story and where he worked and where he recently retired from. So, welcome, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a sunny day here in Denver, Colorado. I just did a hike today, and feeling invigorated fantastic so you're um you're a buffalo bill guy before we get into the buffalo bill part can you tell us a little bit about you you know not not into your family names and politics and money and all that stuff but about you where were you born influences how you got into western history what's the story behind that well um i was born in lawrence kansas the site of the uh, Quantrill Raid back during the Bleeding Kansas days. Of course, I was not born that early. But at any rate, uh, I sort of was born in a fairly historic community in that respect and not far from where Buffalo Bill grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas. And so I, I was growing up, I was steeped in the history of the West and Buffalo Bill's name was one that I, with which I was familiar. I guess you could say he was sort of, as a young man, one of my heroes. Um, I continued to learn about Kansas history. As I got older, though, I decided I'd love to live in Colorado. I spent my time hiking up here. I worked here in the summers during college. I listened to John Denver's song, Rocky Mountain High, and I said, that's, 
that's me. I love Colorado. I love the Rockies. So ended up here, been a few other places, but always come back to Colorado. I might also um, add that um, one of the things I discovered growing up in Kansas was when you talk about Buffalo Bill's Wild West, when you talk about the American West, a lot of what they're talking about is what happened in Kansas, all the way from the bleeding Kansas to the uh, the trails, a little bit of the, the Pony Express went through Kansas, the Santa Fe Trail went right through it. I discovered the Chisholm Trail went about, oh, maybe 10 miles from my house. It went sort of right through where the campus was, where I went to college in Newton, Kansas, which incidentally Buffalo Bill called one of the wildest, woolliest cities in the Old West. Today it's anything but. But that's kind of some background there. It sort of brought me uh, interested in the history of the West. I've certainly done other things too, including being director of a colonial historic site back in Pennsylvania. But as I say, I keep returning to the West. But how did you become like a Buffalo Bill expert? Because I, when I look your you look your name up, there's all sorts of stuff about you about Buffalo Bill, and then you ended up working at the museum and his gravesite. Like, how did your life morph around, and then you become this person on the top of this hill, this mountain? Well, um, I graduated from college with a degree in history, and I wanted to do something with it that did not involve teaching. So uh, one of my professors said, look into working in museums. And I started working in museums and actually altogether spent 44 years working in museums, of which 22 years were at the Buffalo Bill Museum and Grave here outside of Denver, Colorado. Uh, I'll be frank, I worked at several different museums, but when I got this job, I was initially attracted, hey, Looks like a job, uh, a little better money. And it was on top of a mountain. And again, I love the Rockies. The idea of working on top of one of the foothills with a view to the west of the Rocky Mountain, the continental divide, to the east of the Great Plains, that appealed to me. And at that point, I also realized that's why Buffalo Bill chose finally to be buried up there. And I guess that sort of got me into it. 1995 was when I started working. And I decided, in addition to being the director and in charge of the collections and all of that, I wanted to be a content expert. I wanted to be the person not only knew about Buffalo Bill and his life, but the things that were part of his life. And eventually, my desire to do that led me to write my first Buffalo Bill book, Buffalo Bill, Scout, Showman, and Visionary. It's in its third printing, and... I get a lot of compliments on it, I have to say, and I'm pleased because what I was trying to do was just show a well-rounded story of this man, a story of a person with, uh, who is not only buried on Lookout Mountain, but had this marvelous museum that I was in charge of, full of the things of his life. So that's kind of that Buffalo Bill theme in my life. When I, when I retired in 2017, it was just like, I just can't quit you. I had to keep working on Buffalo Bill. And at that point, I combined my interests in foods, and I've always been interested in food, uh, in food history as well, with my interest in Buffalo Bill, which is the genesis of the book that we're going to be talking about. Well, you've written other books, like you said, correct? Yes, yes. What were the other ones that you wrote in? 
written? Well, before? my first my first book was in. I was living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, working at a 1719 colonial house, uh, actually Pennsylvania German house, the oldest remaining Germanic building in North America, and um, it, it was a place that was where early Mennonites uh, had lived, and um, so. I called it a modest Mennonite home, and it was a history of a house and the people who lived in it prior to 1750, which is a very early period uh, of settlement in Pennsylvania, and um, had a lot to do with forming the Pennsylvania that came later in the 18th and 19th and in 20th centuries. So that was my first. Then the second was was Buffalo Bill, Scout, Showman, Visionary. Uh, with uh, about 200 photos, uh, very heavily illustrated because I wanted to show the stuff of his life, the documents associated, old, old photos. Uh, my third book was Lakota Performers in Europe, their culture and the artifacts they left behind. And it dealt with the Lakota Performers with Buffalo Bill's Wild West and other Wild West shows. And the influence that their presence in Europe had on Europeans' understanding of America and of the Indians, and then also the role that performing in Wild West shows played in helping the Lakota in particular preserve their culture at a time when American uh, policy was really kind of a cultural um, uh, annihilation. They wanted to get rid of the culture. They wanted them all to uh, become good American citizens. And just like them, they said, they used to say, you know, kill the Indian or kill the savage, save the man. Uh, when they were in, implemented their policy uh, for treatment of the Indians. And Buffalo Bill and these other Wild West show people gave them an opportunity to con continue performing that culture, not only in the United States, but in Europe, where it was greatly respected. And I think that helped them preserve it until the 1930s when the uh, FDR's administration finally eased up and allowed them to perform and, and show off their culture, even at, at the reservations. They kind of got the thumb of the agent off of them and let them uh, be themselves. I believe these books can be purchased at Amazon, correct? And booksellers? Uh, yeah, I, 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 last time I checked, Amazon Lakota Performers was not available. It's oh. it, the la it went very quickly. It came out in 2017 and was was gone very quickly. And it's very hard to get it. It has not been reprinted, and it gets kind of expensive. Gotcha. Uh, right now, it's ABE Books or A Books. A Books. It's probably one's best bet to get it. Okay. You mentioned one time before we get into the book. You mentioned one time about your museum in an article or interview at History Net. And the question was your biggest accomplishment in the museum. And you mentioned that many people considered the museum a tourist trap. And you instead spent 22 years changing the mindset and instead making it really a legitimate museum with legitimate history. Would that be one of your biggest historical accomplishments? Certainly for the last, you know, number of years of my life and, and, and while I was at that particular museum, I think that was a big one. It was very important to show people the amazing collection of things like outfits worn by Buffalo Bill, a headdress that belonged to Sitting Bull, uh, a lot of artifacts associated with his life and the people who are part of his life. 
So people didn't realize that. They thought it was just like another roadside attraction. And of course, we definitely want to attract tourists and everybody to the museum. But we want them to come because of the real things that are there, the legitimate things and the legitimate stories. I think one of the other things that bothered me was when I first started, they were kind of apologizing for Buffalo Bill. Mm. Oh, they say he killed all the buffalo, but he didn't. He, yeah, he kind of uh, uh, used the Indians in his wild wishes. I said, no, that wasn't it at all. Mm. He actually, even though he hunted before the extinction period began, later on he was one of the voices trying to save them. And uh, Ken Burns just recently gave credit to him in his special that he put together for PBS on the American Buffalo. The other part of it was he became, even though they were enemies during the Indian Wars, he became a good friend and a confidant and, quite frankly, an ally and advocate for Indian rights. Um, and that was left out of so many stories at the museum and other places. So those of us who are talking about Buffalo Bill nowadays that are historians who know the information are saying, Buffalo Bill was a good guy. He tried to help with environmental issues. He supported Teddy Roosevelt in his efforts to, to uh, start national parks. He supported, you know, the Indians and advocated for their rights. He gave them an opportunity to get off the reservations and perpetuate and continue their culture. And he also was a very strong advocate for women's rights and for women getting equal pay. All of these things weren't being told. And I feel very proud that we're, they're being told there now. When, when was the decision to write a book? <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. When was the decision to write a book about the food that Buffalo Bill enjoyed, created, possibly cooked for himself. When was the decision? Was this something in the back of your mind that you've always wanted to do this? Or was, like, if you've heard any of my podcasts, people were researching a specific item and all these little things kept popping up and you were setting them to the side and you're like, oh my God, I got enough for a book and I can write about Buffalo Bill's food. When when was that decision made? Well, I can actually pinpoint it fairly accurately. It was at a Mexican restaurant here in Denver. And um, I met with a couple of people, including, oh, goodness, I, I have him in the acknowledgments. And uh, I need to give credit to him uh, for being the person that revealed to me, and I'll give you his name in just a second, who revealed to me that Buffalo Bill had opened the first Mexican restaurant east of the Mississippi. I'd never heard that before. His name was Guillermo Ariano. And he wrote a book called Taco USA, and a fascinating book about Mexican food in America. And he said he had run across that. And um, it's like, wow, that is really cool. And I've always had an interest in food. I collect historic food books or uh, historic cookbooks, have uh, various food histories in my, my library. And so it was like all of a sudden that, these two things, my interest in Buffalo Bill and my interest in food, had some possibilities together. So I started doing research based pretty much on that conversation. And I found lots of material. Once I was finished with the research part, I, 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 I had close to 2,000 pages of notes wow. that could go into making a book. And I found there was a plethora of material on Buffalo Bill and foods and the foods of the Wild West shows. Uh, and all of that, the, the things that he was behind uh, making happen. 
uh, and that was, I think that was when it, it happened. It happened probably just a little bit before I retired. So I couldn't, uh, that I got interested in this, uh, but I couldn't really give it the time because of course working full time for the museum that I wanted to until after I retired. So then I went into high gear in 2017 and started running around uh, the West and even going as far as uh, New Haven to visit the Beinecke Library in Yale to, to uncover some of this great material. Well, if you're wondering who we're talking to, we're talking to Steve Friesen, and uh, he's written a book called Galloping Gourmet, Eating and Drinking with Buffalo Bill. Beautiful cover. We're going to talk about the cover as well. Uh, you can find it on Amazon for twenty four ninety five and at booksellers near you. Um, so I urge you to get this one. I'm I'm about the very beginnings of it. I'm in the middle of finishing one book, and I'm in the very beginnings of this one. But um, I've done a lot of research about it, and we're going to talk about some things. And and uh, again, I want to urge you to get this book at Amazon. And I want to thank Sarah Key and everybody over at University of Nebraska Press for their kindness and continued support. The book has 37 illustrations. As an appendix and a cookbook, along with endnotes. And with all of that put together, because I'm going to talk about the cookbook later. With all of that put together, there was a comment made that not only is it about Buffalo Bill's life and culinary life, but about his history as well. And the book shouldn't just be thought of as the food that Bill ate, but as a history book as well. Did you do that on purpose? Yes, there was there was a point where I was talking with another lawyer, or a writer, I should say. Um, excuse me. Um, I'm a member of Western Writers of America, mm-hmm. and we have an annual meeting. I talked with a person who's a cookbook writer and food historian, um, um, Sherry Monahan, who's mm-hmm. a member as well. Yeah. And, and Sherry said, "You you need to kind of make a choice. You can either have a cookbook." <clears throat> You can do a food history. I decided to do a food history, but I thought, wait a minute, there is too much in the way of interesting recipes here that I could include. So I decided to create an appendix with some with some food items. So it's sort of a partial cookbook in the appendix area. But the thing I had most fun with in putting that appendix together was telling the bat foods that uh, Buffalo Bill would have consumed or the people who part of his Wild West show would have consumed. For example, uh, P.T. Barnum's um, a boiled uh, pork trotters or pork, you know, pig's feet. And Buffalo Bill would have eaten them at one of the hotels in New York. And uh, I include a recipe because P.T. Barnum came up with this idea of how to cook, how to boil pig's feet and make them into a recipe and so the recipe's in there. If any of you're interested in doing pickle, or not pickled pig's feet, my dad used to eat those, yeah, boiled pig's feet. Yeah, we don't eat them much nowadays, do we? No, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was part of it. I also, uh, you know, conceptualized this as sort of a culinary biography, and I'd read a few other uh, biographies of, like, Abraham Lincoln and uh, um, Benjamin Franklin a couple of other people that have, have written things that are kind of culinary biographies, looking at the, the gourmet aspects or the food aspects of people that are well-known. 
and certainly Buffalo Bill is quite enough well-known. In fact, I used to say, you know, uh, George Washington is the father of our country, and Buffalo Bill is one of its favorite sons. And in many ways, he is. He's so prominent in the history. And so it seemed like this is an aspect of Buffalo Bill nobody's explored. But there was so much material on it. And he had some impact. And in fact, my my last... Um, my last chapter deals with Buffalo Bill's food legacy. So I've, I, I've danced around. I think I've answered that. <laughs> you did. And so then my next question is, um, and it's more about the book itself and the way you structured the book before we talk about other things. I'm curious as to the part one, part two, part three, because you have individual chapters and then you also have parts. What was the purpose of that? Well, I, I realized as I was starting to do this that I, I start out with a chronological approach. So the first five chapters are pretty much chronological. And then that's part one, acquiring a taste for the good life. Part two, culinary themes from an exhibition moved from chronology to thematic. And so I started within certain themes that I felt were important to, to explore, but none of them, while they may be somewhat chronological within the chapter, if you put that group of chapters together, it, it to me became a little confusing. Wait, you're talking about 1878 here, and now wait a minute, you're 1905, and now you're talking about 1893, and then 1883, and because I was trying to explore these different themes. Uh, including things like uh, his Fourth of July feasts or he, his introduction of American cuisine to Europe. So I had to figure out a way to kind of break, make that break from chronology into thematic uh, approach. And then finally, uh, the last one is sort of, I call it the last stance. And then I kind of get more into uh, a chronology again, uh, dealing with, uh, uh, a couple of questions. It's somewhat thematic, but also has a certain chronology to it. And there I was dealing with some things like uh, uh, all the stories about his drinking uh, and uh, wanted to deal also with the end of his life and then finally his legacy. So that was the thinking behind it. Until I broke those into the three sections, to me it seemed to jump around a little too much. It still sort of jumps around, but at least it's, you know... It's filed properly, if you will. No, I think that's true. When when you do your research, you as a researcher, are you still the old researcher that goes down into the basements and digs deep into the archives? Or do you now use mostly the internet and and um, uh, newspapers.com? What is your what is your research style? in regards to how you put this book together, because Bill was nationwide and the food and making sure that everything fit correctly. How did you research this book? Well, it's kind of a, my approach to research has always been that at least the, the idea going into is leave no stone unturned. And that means using every resource at your you know, at your hands that you can, can access. So I spent time in archives. I went to some of the better archives. Quite frankly, the Buffalo Museum Engrave has a very good archive. 
and I started there uh, looking at original materials there. I went to Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. As I mentioned, I went to get some materials at the Beinecke Library in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. I, 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 I just tried to find every possible source on Buffalo Bill. Um, spent some time in other libraries just researching some food histories to get some proper context. So that's sort of the what you were saying, going into the cellar, the dusty dusty rooms or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then I spent also a great deal of time uh, looking at things on the Internet from all sorts of sources. Um, I spent a lot of time with newspapers.com. That is an incredible resource. It's kind of expensive. It is an incredible resource to anybody doing research um, in what would be considered the era of the newspapers, the 19th century and and up until now. Uh, There is so much good material to be found there. New um, uh, New York State Library, I did that online because I couldn't go there. Or not New York State, New York City Library, I'm sorry. Um, friends the Smithsonian, I contacted them for some information. And that's the other thing. You, you, you have a network of people at museums and libraries that you tap into and see if they can help you. So, like I say, I, I, if it was possible to find something, I would look for it. When you decided that the the cookbook was going to be your direction because you weren't just researching a, a man's life like a lot many writers will just research a man's life or a woman's life or an event you not only had that but you also had the food side of it which was researching food uh types of food types of items during that century during that cent you know century period decade so you you were almost in a way writing two books and putting them together. Was it harder to do that to put to create the two, or be, or were you researching a singular item? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Actually, what was hard was not including too many things about other aspects of his life. Mm. So. You know, my first book was about his life in general. My first book about Buffalo Bill, and I dealt with his life in general at the museum and at other articles and things I'd written, lectures I'd done. So for me, it was the, the difficulty was actually making sure I focused more on the food things and didn't get too far down uh, away from food to some other things. Like I, I deal a little bit with the internal operations of the Wild West, uh, things like. Uh, what it took to how many train cars it took or how many there are actually three full trains that had to carry the entire show but the whole point of telling that was then to say and the first car that was unloaded was the range wagon which they used to prepare the foods so i tried to make sure there was a context even if i did something about erecting the tents or you know selling souvenir books they didn't just sell souvenir books they sold foods they sold popcorn balls that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't too hard putting that material together, but it was making sure that I didn't get too carried away with other aspects of Buffalo Bill's life that didn't completely intersect with this. The thing of it is, there has been so much written about Buffalo Bill. There are an abundance of books, and again, I have a lot of them in my library. So there are an abundance of books about Buffalo Bill, but nobody has really talked about this aspect of his life. And I really wanted to uncover that. And I think I was fairly successful at revealing it because other people are saying, wow, I didn't realize 
And if somebody says something about Buffalo Bill, who's so well-known by many historians, people here in the West, that the, if I uncover something and they say, I didn't realize, I feel like I really accomplished something. I revealed something new about this guy. So then, from the aspect of the food itself, the things like modern refrigeration, even though they had ice, ice, ice boxes and ice blocks, modern refrigeration, how was it, how did Bill keep things fresh in these, and and food fresh in these, in these times? Because, you know, I'm looking at his picture, and he loved parties and getting people together. The preparation itself, did he oversee that? How did he accomplish that task? Well, he had, he, you know, it's what they always say. If you're a good manager, if you're a good entrepreneur, you hire the good people mm -hmm. to do what you want them to do. You make sure, you, you recognize your limitations. And he wasn't a cook. He right. hired good cooks. If he, he saw a chef who he thought did really good work, he would try to hire that chef. Um, he hired people that were uh, kind of innovators, just as he was. So there is one of the uh, the, the chapters within the uh, culinary themes is called Meals on Wheels. It's about the creation of this large range wagon, and I have a photograph of it in the book, which was basically took four, five, six, it depends on, on how they configured it in the season, stoves, wood-burning stoves, and put them all together, gave them a common one or two smokestacks, and this this huge contraption would be billowing out smoke as as when they arrived into the town. That was the first thing they got that fired up, and they were flipping pancakes if it was breakfast, and they were they were cooking all of that, and they were able to to feed in the beginning maybe six hundred people, but by the end as many as eleven hundred people who were part of that show, all the way from the from the performers to the guys that put up the tents. That's a huge number of mouths to feed three times a day through the entire time that they're traveling. And they figured out a way to do it, not only with that, but one of the things you had mentioned about the, the ice, and they had a special refrigerator wagon that one of the guys devised that was full of ice and that they could use to keep things cold. And it was just like walking into a walk-in freezer when you walked into that refrigerator. A wagon. Everything was very cold and was preserved. Plus, they had fresh supplies delivered every day that they could. So they got into town, and in those towns, they'd already contact merchants, local butchers, bakers, who would supply them with materials. And then let's say they had another town they were going to that didn't have as many supplies. They'd make sure they had enough stored up so when they got to that other town, they could still still uh, have the material. And then you also, by this time, you can take advantage of the rail travel and the fact that uh, there were already sort of refrigerator-type cars, um, again, I think for the most part used uh, using ice initially, but they had refrigerator-type cars that they could ship halves of beef and meats and all sorts of other things, and they could get them that way as well. So... Being the procurer of those foods was a huge job. Whoever whoever took it, that's so fascinating. When even though Bill, you said as a manager, he would hire people, was he directly involved in the process? Like, 
Did he like to go through and taste the sauces and smell the stuff and see how it was prepared? Or was he totally hands-off? Because I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, I hope you do, that he was somebody who would walk through and take a sample and taste this. So before he got to his guests, he already knew ahead of time, you know, he already knew ahead of time what something tastes like. Was that the case, or was he totally hands-off? Well, he wasn't, let's say, sort of a Gordon Ramsay type who's back there supervising everything that happened right. in the kitchen and tasting right. all that. He, he did taste it, but he ate it when his people ate it. So basically, he ate with them. So they would have a big tent. Everybody's being served in the tent, maybe sometimes in several waves uh, because they're a fairly large group. And he was in there eating with them. So he ate everything that they ate every day. He would do that. He would occasionally, you know, if they're in a place like New York, Chicago, he might eat in, you know, a restaurant here and there, uh, you know, to schmooze people. But, but he was very much sort of tongue on, if you will, not necessarily to sampling while they were cooking, but he ate everything that was prepared. And he was very, he, paid, he was very attentive to it. Uh, he, he wanted to make sure, and, and this is something else that the newspaper reporters would say, you know, Buffalo Bill works very hard to ensure that everybody is well fed who works for him. And they would say, uh, you can't eat any better at some of the finest restrooms, uh, restaurants in Chicago or New York than you could eat at Buffalo Bill's Wild West. So he was very attentive. And when he had special guests over, often they might have a, a, a special tent that he would receive them let's say when he had the Prince of Wales over or somebody like that. Uh, but they were still eating the food that was prepared for all the workers. It was very egalitarian in that respect. Uh, but then when you look at what the workers ate, I mean, you could have steak three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, and uh, you could have chicken fricassee. They would have a variety of gourmet fares. Uh, that they could eat every day. Now, it would change up a little bit, but he took very good care of them. And one of the other things that made it less, let's say, like a, a restaurant where you order off a menu, it was all available. Everything that they made was available to anybody that ate there. And it was also served by waiters, which is kind of cool. The, the, the employees were treated well enough that they had white-clad waiters with towels over their arms serving them the food. So then let's talk about the cover of your book. Because yeah, as you're talking to me, I'm looking at this cover that I can literally envision everything that you said. Great storytelling. And I can envision it all. Let's talk about the cover. Is that Bill on the front? Oh, yeah. That's Bill. Uh, you, you, you'll see that he uh, doesn't have uh, his hat on. Right. Uh, so you get to see that Bill, Bill's already starting to bald a little bit. And he had to do a little supplement of his hair. He sometimes had to wear a wig as well. But he also, of course, had that, uh, that Stetson that he was often seen wearing. But that is he. And this is actually one of the 4th of July celebrations. And that's where they really kind of put on the dog. They would, uh, really, uh, bring out some more gourmet foods for the, for the people. Um, for for the workers on the 4th of July to celebrate the 4th of July. And they would do this no matter where they were. Eastern Europe, we have a menu in the, up at the Buffalo Bill Museum from the 4th of July the East, in Eastern Europe that they ate uh, in uh, Croatia. 
uh, you, uh, you know, they're in London. They have a special observance of the 4th of July. You know, they're, wherever they're at, they made a point, and I have one chapter devoted to that. And this is one of those 4ths of July. So you can see the stars and stripes a little bit yep. in the background between, beside the poster of Buffalo Bill himself. And you see the other folks posing around there, and they're eating well. And they had tablecloths. They had tablecloths, cloth napkins. They served them with uh, – there was a certain hierarchy of serving. The guys that were doing the work, the, the folks that were raising, raising the tents and doing the hard physical labor, they didn't even care for fancy china. So they would eat off of granite ware, this tin stuff covered with, you know, with uh, that hard paint that called, they call granite ware. So they would eat off of that, sometimes just with a spoon. And then the performers would eat off a little nicer china. And then Buffalo Bill and his guests in the top echelons might eat off of, of a little finer china as well and with full set of, of silverware. They actually had employees who were part of the show whose job it was to pack everything up, to clean and pack all of the dishes, all of the silver, all of that. And when the people came, they might be served on different types of serving plates and that kind of thing. And the people in the, in the show served on different types of serving platters and plates. They ate exactly the same food, though. Everybody got the same food. And it was, as I said, considered high quality. That's so great. Uh, thank you for the story about that cover. It's a beautiful cover. If you're looking at the podcast itself, you'll actually see part of the cover um, of the book on the podcast cover. So if you get to a bookstore or you're on Amazon and you're like, I'm not sure, make sure you match that cover up because it's a gorgeous cover. Well, and the Galloping Gourmet kind of jumps out on that cover, too, and that doesn't hurt at all. No. And that, that title, I struggled with that a while, because I actually, the uh, Galloping Gourmet on television, Graham Kerr, I used to watch it when I was a teenager, and I was so impressed. And then he kind of disappeared from the scene, but that, that memory was still in my head. But I thought, you know, he was a Galloping Gourmet, but Buffalo Bill, in many ways, was the original galloping gourmet right. so i certainly give credit to graham care for making me be interested quite frankly in food ways but the galloping gourmet i felt was uh buffalo bill and i wanted to get that name out there in front because i think it kind of captures very much this man who loved to ride horses who rode horses with the pony express as a hunter as, as a frontiersman as a scout and he continued to ride horses, and he emphasized horsemanship in his shows. Yet at the same time, he loved food of all kinds, gourmet foods, and he even loved he loved to go out in the country or up, you know, in the mountains and eat wild game. Uh, he, in fact, one point he uh, had a, a, a group of hunters and friends of his who were up in the mountains, and he had gotten one of the chefs of the Brown Palace to come and make nice foods for them. And they kind of rebelled. They said, wait a minute, we're up on a hunting trip here. We want to eat frontier foods. And basically, Buffalo Bill said to the chef, you know, take it easy. You don't have to cook anything. And he took charge of cooking the food. He cooked all the, 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 the frontier foods, the, the antelope, the deer, the, the fish, whatever it was, the prairie chickens, all of that. He cooked it for everybody. So he was able to do some cooking. When it got to the more gourmet fare, he let someone else do that. 
Can you guys not listen to Steve talk like all the time? If you're listening to this podcast, I can, I am totally enamored in his storytelling. So I'm hoping you guys are enjoying this interview because I am, I am loving it. This is just fantastic. Um, well, thank you. I, I enjoy I, I'm your, kind of passionate about the topic. Well, and I enjoy your writing. I know that you're with uh, True West Magazine, um, correct? Is where I last yeah. saw your article. And uh, yeah. your feature article for Truest Magazine. And uh, and Bob Bozbell, if you're listening, um, he's a, he's a, he's always been very kind. And whenever I've uh, needed uh, help with a certain interviewer, like Sherry, I needed, I wanted to interview. I think he connected me with Sherry Monahan, And she, and he is very kind. And uh, Bob, if you're listening, thank you for the continued support. Um, well, I got to tell you, Bob is great to work with. Stuart Rosebrook uh, is, and in, in fact, he even wrote a little blurb for me. He did. Uh, work with him every month, you know, getting my deadline in and getting my articles. And and to be quite frank, the University of Nebraska Press, they, they're good people to work with. They're really very good to their authors, and I appreciated what they did, too. You hear that, Sarah? You're getting another compliment. I told I told Sarah. Oh, yeah, Sarah's email. been fun, hasn't she? Yeah, I told Sarah. <laughs> I said, you're going to get tons of... Uh, Tons of uh, kudos and stuff. So make sure you know you don't uh, don't get all um, you know big headed on us because uh, she's a <laughs> terrific lady and and she's been very kind. I want to talk a little bit because we're coming down. We only got about about ten minutes left. It goes by fast. Let's talk about the cookbook at the end of your book. There's a cookbook at the end that lists all sorts of stuff, and I kind of was stuck on his favorites. I think they're his favorites and correct me if I wrong, I'm wrong. Um the bean soup. Mm-hmm. And then there was the banana fritters, which sounds so good. <laughs> like banana fritters. Go through the cookbook if you could and tell tell us a little bit about it and why you put a cookbook at the end. Well I like, I like food and how do you write how do you write a book about food without including some recipes? How can I write a book about Buffalo Bill eating if I don't give people a chance to see what he ate and maybe even have a chance to prepare it themselves? So it starts at the beginning with cornbread and, of course, um, yellow fried yellow leg chicken. And that's one of my wife's favorite things about this book is the whole story of yellow leg chicken. They did not label chickens by their breeds back then. It was by the color of their legs. And yellow leg chickens were very popular, particularly in Kansas when Buffalo Bill was growing up. So I've got something for fried chicken. And this is not deep fried. This is not Kentucky fried. This is pan-fried chicken. This I grew up in Kansas, too, so I know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Pan-fried and lard uh, uh, chicken. Yeah. Hard tack, you mm-hmm. got to have that back in the day. And that stuff lasts forever. There's some museums that still have hard tack in their collections from the Civil War. Wow. Uh, beans. Beans. Buffalo Bill said, let's see if I can find... Where he said, basically, if you, if you want to be on the frontier, you got to learn to eat beans. You got to eat beans. Beef. And, and then, beans were staple. And then you even had a part in here, and I don't know why, but he, about his one of his drinks, which was called Red Lemonade and Horse's Neck. And I don't know why, <laughs> but they sound like they'll put you on the ground. Were they alcohol drinks or were they... 
Red, red lemonade was not with alcohol. Red lemonade was the sort of thing that vendors would sell, and many of them were selling the red lemonade outside. So Buffalo Bill was huge. When his show came to town, it transformed the economy of that town. There was so much money that came in. People came from miles around and spent money, and they wanted to eat. They wanted to drink while they were there as well as see the show. And there would be vendors as you were walking on your way to the showgrounds who would be, you know, vending lemonades. And red lemonade was very popular then as a circus beverage particularly. And there were various recipes for red lemonade, and I go through that. It was basically lemonade that had been mostly colored in some fashion, either from strawberry juice or from uh, sometimes they put in cinnamon sticks mm-hmm. and a little bit of red dye, or not red dye, but, you know, the stuff that you use to color Good things color. red. And yep. and uh, so that, that was that. Now, the drinks, the horse's neck could be done either way. You could either make it as a, uh, a drink with alcohol or a drink with uh, without alcohol. And in fact, uh, as I get into the whole story of Buffalo Bill's drinking, I include something about the horse's neck and his consumption. Uh, later on, Buffalo Bill became nearly a teetotaler. And this came up um, during his divorce trial. And they, they accused him at some point, I think, of, of getting uh, drunk or having drinks of this, this horse's neck. And he said, well, that was because he had ordered one and the, the, the it was mistakenly served one that had alcohol in it. Now, how much of a mistake that was, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's one that that you guys that are listening, if you want to make one this for, make one of these for the family, you know, just leave the alcohol out. It, it's kind of a, a ginger ale based kind of thing. Hmm. And in fact, Buffalo Bill, as as a uh, almost teetotaler, a great deal of moderation drank ginger ale quite a bit. Very cool. We have just about five minutes left. I was going to ask a time machine question because my listeners are used to the time machine question. I won't ask that because it's not a specific event. I will ask you, though, out of all the dishes that were made that you read about and all the foods that you read about, what ended up being something that maybe was your favorite? That you personally, not your wife and the yellow chicken, but... You know, what was your, what is something that you're like, man, that is totally my favorite. That is the one. I think, um, let's see, I'm not even sure where I put it in the, well, there's, there's one that's a, that I have to confess and I haven't had it to drink yet. I have to make it. Everybody says, haven't you had a drink? Haven't you made this yet? And I haven't. Maybe I should go out and do that right now. But there's one that just, it just kind of, I don't know, it's just weird. And I say it's weird in the sense that it might not even be politically correct nowadays, but it is called the bosom caresser. <laughs> a bosom caresser. And this was a popular drink that was served at the American uh, cocktail bar when Buffalo Bill's Wild West was in London in 1887. It was very new. They, the cocktails were not served in London much prior to that. And Buffalo Bill's Wild West helped promote those. And this bosom caresser, it's just kind of one of those strange names. Uh, it's a racy name, if you will. 
but it, it, it's it's somewhat titillating, and maybe that's part of what the attraction was. It's made with a teaspoonful of raspberry syrup, a new-laid egg, a glass full of brandy, and a little milk, and it's shaken together. Right. That was intriguing. Maybe I should say intriguing. Okay. But I also included, I'm trying to look for it here, I also included uh, a preparation of steak, and I love steak. I, I mean, I'm a Kansas boy. It's meat and potatoes for me. And uh, there is a steak preparation in there that he enjoyed at home. Uh, and here it is, Buffalo Bill's favorite beef. And it's fairly simple. Um, sliced, uh, sliced one inch thick, medium rare on a grill. And butter, butter. put on top of it. That's mm. the way I serve my steaks too. And it's the melted butter on top that makes a difference. Gotcha. And if you don't cook your steak, and put butter on top of it. Let it rest when you're letting it rest. Let that butter soak into it. Cool. That just adds a little extra of the fat. I have no desire to eat any fatty steak because I can add a little bit off of that. And it, it just, it makes uh, a New York strip that's quite tasty. And I was so pleased to see that's my favorite, and it's his too. Well, you heard it. It's a simple recipe, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're talking to Steve Friesen. He's written a book called uh, The Galloping Gourmet, Eating and Drinking with Buffalo Bill. You can find it on uh, Amazon and booksellers near you. It runs for $24.95 on Amazon, and it's uh, uh, it's easy to find. Look for the picture on the podcast, and you'll find it. Of course, uh, I want to thank uh, – there's quite a few people we're going to thank in this podcast. Uh, Wild West History Association uh, – can't even say it. Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. And, of course, as always, Mark and Eric over at the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. Uh, we want to, I, I personally want to thank again, um, because it was because of True Us Magazine and Bob Bose Bell, um, reading the article and then reaching out through, uh, University of Nebraska Press, uh, Sarah Key. I want to thank her as well as helping out and putting this together. And she's also helped out with three or four more. So as we roll into 2024, I've got some other ones out there that went and Steve as well introduced me to some people that uh, are going to have said, yes, we're just working on details and dates and times and, and schedules. So we're going to have some more coming up with some of uh, Steve's contacts. Um, I also want to thank, uh, um, uh, the folks at Wild West History Association, as far as the YouTube, Pam, Pam Potter and uh, Annie Lanham, Eddie Lanham, they're over there putting great content together on YouTube, as well as Dave Guyton uh, on the Inst uh, Wild West History Association Instagram page. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Cochise County underscore travels. Uh, you can find me on iHeartRadio, Podbean, Stitcher, uh, all sorts of podcast channels are out there. Find them. Please leave a rating and review. And if you're a parent and you're wondering, uh, iTunes has put uh, my podcast in the educational category and clean, which means that we do not swear on our podcast. So you don't have to worry about your kids listening. Um, dad's wanting to drive. You guys as a family are going somewhere. You can let, uh, let the family listen um, and uh, you won't have to worry about any swearing or, or any crazy stuff going on. So I want to thank iTunes for that. Of course, Steve, I want to thank you, sir, for your time. 
I appreciate you a bunch. Anything before we go? Is there anything that you want to add personal or um, about your book? Or do you have anything coming up that you would share with us? Well, you know, one other thing about my book, and it really goes to the whole issue of the legacy of Buffalo Bill. It's it's not really unknown, but after Buffalo Bill did his journeys around Europe, there was a bump in the purchase of corn for consumption in Europe by uh, uh, orders of corn from the United States. He actually had an impact on the American economy and the sale of corn because going throughout Europe, he was eating cornmeal all sorts of other things, popcorn, all of this. And he helped bring a certain visibility to corn in Europe that nobody really had prior to that time. It's kind of a little thing, but it actually had a real economic impact. And this just gives you a little bit of an idea of the legacy that he, he, he had that I discovered while I was doing my research. And that research is for his book, The Galloping Gourmet, or not The, but Galloping Gourmet, Eating and Drinking with Buffalo Bill. Um, thank you, sir, for your time. I appreciate you coming on during the week. Is there, okay. is there anything that you're working on that we can see coming out in 2024, 2025? Well, mostly I'm, I'm working on this. I have a few other ideas that have nothing to do with Buffalo Bill. I'm going to take a little break from buffalo bill for a while there but what you know i'm going to keep working on this because now that the thing's done i'm going to you know enjoy eating some of these recipes with my friends and (laughs) talking more about galloping gourmet well i was hoping he was going to say he was going to writing a new book because um I'm enjoying what I'm reading so far. I appreciate you guys okay. a bunch. Yeah, I appreciate. <laughs> well, I will write a new book. It's just probably oh, not okay. going to be about Buffalo Bill. Well, good because I was going to get cranky there. I was going to say, "Get on it. We'll stop wasting time." <laughs> I'd hate to do that. I don't want to make you cranky. No, and, uh, and and stop wasting time. Your wife said you need to stay busy because you're driving her nuts. Um, <laughs> so stupid. Anyways, I thank you guys. I appreciate you a bunch. Until next time, we'll see you soon. <laughs>